0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. October 26, 2023, the Live from Madison edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast, and we are live at the sold-out Majestic Theater in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, with a crowd of, of rowdy, rowdy Madisonians. Um, I would just like to note in in preface that we had lunch like many hours ago uh, at the Old Fashioned, and I had had cheese curds and a fried walleye and onion strings, so if I have a stroke during the show, you'll know
1: why. But no one, sadly, because I'd already eaten, had the bratwurst, so...
2: They mourned that. I had a really boring salad, but it was really good.
0: To my far left, a man who knows far more about Bob La Follette and William Proxmire than anyone else in the room, the host of CBS Primetime, John Dickerson. (laughs) And to my near left, but only geographically, since by Madison standards, I think we're all like MAGA, probably. ...is a woman who, who cares as much about the Supreme Court of your state as you do, but who cannot, cannot pronounce Janet Protasewicz's name. Emily, how can... Try it. It's really
2: true. Protasewicz.
0: Emily Bazelon. This week on the Gabfest, Fest, Wisconsin is the red-hot center <laughs> of America's fights over gerrymandering...
1: What? No, no, I was just thinking of you Protusaywitz know, and then all the different pronunciations we've no, had during the day. don't do
2: another no, pronunciation. No, was, don't even let me think it about it. It was great. It. At one
1: point it was Smith. <laughs> it was really, really far off. Anyway, sorry, carry
0: on. Wisconsin is at the red hot center of America's fights over gerrymandering populism and democracy. We will talk to Governor Tony Evers about, about whether the fate of the republic hinges on what happens here in Madison. Then Mike Johnson, a man none of us, and I mean literally, let us be honest, none of us had heard of three days ago, has become the Speaker of the House of Representatives. What will come after this Republican orgy of cannibalism? (laughs) Then Mark Meadows has immunity. Jenna Ellis has cut a deal. So did Ken Chesbro. So did Sidney release the Kraken Powell. How big a threat is this week's cascade of guilty pleas to criminal defendant Donald Trump. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter, including a couple of surprise cocktail chatter guests. You have elected our guest twice as governor of Wisconsin, and I do mean that you did it since Tony Evers won, especially in 2022, thanks to huge majorities. Here in Dane County So please welcome Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers To the Gap House
3: I've got a microphone
2: I think some of them Voted for you
3: Yes Thank you. Last time I was on this stage I was raising money
1: Oh
0: We're what? raising money For ourselves <laughs> Yeah
1: You may place place lose place some, place some, some money <laughs> After tonight You never know
0: It's a good
3: place To raise money These are great people These are Wisconsinites <laughs> I feel like, you know, I have a microphone. I used to be a high school principal. I, like, I should be calling somebody down to the office.
0: You should definitely do that. I, there was somebody heckling earlier. All
3: right. I want your name. Mm. <laughs>
0: um, so, Governor Evers, you are, are famously interested in fixing roads and schools, really interested in schools, yet you're governor of a state, uh, a state of Wisconsin, at a time that all... Anyone seems to want to talk about is gerrymandering and the future of democracy. Why has your state, which is famously civil, famously sort of this wonderful bastion of democracy and progressivism, why has it become such a poisonously divided state?
3: Donald Trump? I mean, really, I mean, this, whatever's happening here in Wisconsin, I mean, just what happened today with uh, what's it, Johnson, Michael Johnson? <laughs> Michael Johnson now is the is the two pe- people away from being president of the United States. This person is, um, you know, doesn't believe that uh, Joe Biden was elected officially. He doesn't. He wants to mess with transgender kids' lives. You know, all the things that, frankly, we're messing around with here. And so I think, you know, I'd love to say that for all my other Democratic uh, governors in the country that. Uh, this is something that's just unique to Wisconsin. I think we handle things in a lot different ways, but other states. But it's a national issue. It started with a lame duck session, I, before, even before I took office. And uh, they, they met, and they passed several laws that made it more difficult for the executive branch to operate.
0: But why, why, is, it, why is that happening? Why, why is it happening now, and it didn't happen a century ago?
3: Robin Voss wasn't born a century ago. He's a pretty young guy. Well, you know, you're right. Although I think things happened, you know, a hundred years ago too. But the uh, the bottom line is, this is a national effort to uh, uh, to mess with democracy, and uh, it's it's sad that that is kind of the guts of what's going on, but. Uh, I believe it's true it started with you know started with, as I said with them taking over some authority and just continuing on to this day and you know I, ha- I have a great veto pen so I veto a lot of things we we do but but, but even that has been diminished and so we we need gerry- we need to get rid of the gerrymandered maps but at the, at the end of the day at the end of the day, it's the people of Wisconsin that are going to count, and uh, and we we can we can ch- turn this around and be a civil state where we do agree on some things, disagree on some things, but right now, it's uh, few and far between, especially on the big issues.
2: So there is a new lawsuit called Clark that would that is challenging the maps, the state legislative maps, not the congressional maps, and it would address the gerrymandering, which is making it you know, so hard for Democrats when they win a majority of votes to actually be a majority in the state legislature. Right. You know, obviously your state Supreme Court before the election of Justice Protosewitz. Yeah. Yeah. ruled ruled against a similar challenge and now there's a new case and she's on the court. And, you know, we're seeing this in a number of states where justices say one thing and then there's another majority, a different majority and then they say something else. Mm -hmm. Is that a problem in itself or is it more important to really consider these issues from a variety of perspectives? You know, what what do you make of that shift? Is that something that people are going to find unsettling?
3: Oh, I think... I think we will be in a much better place by the first of next year. Uh, I do believe that we will have the maps uh, uh, starting to be redrawn, so that we're in a good place in, the, in a few months uh, after that. so She won by a lot. I, I thought I had a landslide at 3.5 percent, <laughs> uh, but she won by a lot, and uh, uh, it's not that we expect her to deliver the goods. but. We have a good case. We have a good case. And we, we actually won last time in the Supreme Court, Wisconsin Supreme Court, with, um, with people's maps that, that we drew. And it was about a 50-50 split, and all that was good. And then it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they knocked it down, sent it back to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and they said, thank God we don't have to do that, and went back to the present maps. That's what it's all about. It's about representation. You you look at any polling that's done in Wisconsin on abortion, about any other issue, and the people of Wisconsin are with us. They're not against us. And where the the Republicans have taken this, um, that's not supported by the people. I mean, I I have two people on, two or three people on my, my cabinet that have been approved by the Senate. The rest are in limbo and can be fired at any time. That's a problem. You know, thank God they're willing to put up with it. But how do you get good people to work for state government in an appointed position if they can be fired at any minute by a Senate that basically just doesn't want me and the Democrats to succeed and to really do what the people want? It's not about Democrats succeeding. It's doing what the people of Wisconsin want.
1: Governor, I want to try and go back a little bit to David's question. You mentioned Donald Trump, the Speaker of the Assembly, you also mentioned. But there are a lot of voters supporting those people. You say that that those aren't Wisconsinites who are supporting them, but some number of them are. I just wonder if you could – one of the things that Wisconsin has to wrestle with and that the country has to wrestle with is – who are who are the voters? Who, what is the electorate feeling? And whether even those who may be misguided and who they choose to represent them, nevertheless, have core feelings that are real. And how do you read that in your state? Um, what's behind the support for these politicians? And to the extent that we've seen more violence, you've experienced threats yourself. How have you seen that trajectory change over the course of your career?
3: Well, first of all, I think... Well, it's gotten much... I, I run into some of these people myself. Yeah. Uh, they're occasionally outside our, our house with uh, AK-40 or AR-45s or whatever the hell they are. <laughs> Those big guns. Yeah. <laughs> and... Because we have open carry in Wisconsin. But the... So, but but I, I think it really is um, a minority of people that... Uh, uh, are just been disaffected by any number of things that we haven 't been able to address, but the you know the things that we did during the pandemic to you know bolster small businesses to get roads fixed do things like that that's that 's a eighty five percent or more group of people in Wisconsin want that stuff done they want the government to work, and the number of people that are Really aggressively against us, mainly because of who we are or who who we represent. Uh, I think it's a small number, but it's it's loud, and uh, and Donald Trump has give, given them voice.
0: So, Governor, you worked as a teacher. You mentioned you worked as a principal. I think one of the the things that I find so unsettling as a as a parent and someone who. Went to school myself. Is the way uh, education has become so divisive, and the way that teachers are kind of at the at the front line of that division. And I wonder what you think, as a former educator who now has to govern, you can do in the state to restore enthusiasm and respect for teachers.
3: Yeah, that's a that's a great great question. Unfortunately, that began a long time ago with Act 10, when they took bargaining rights away from public public school teachers. But and we've continued since then. And right right now, it is around some culture wars that are really kind of bizarre. I I think we just we have to continue advocating for the right things for kids. And we will we will win we will win this thing. I I. I, I, I know two smaller districts, and, and this is not the end of more than those two, but that were taken over by, um, uh, you know, people on the band books and the issues around transgender and so on and so forth. And they took over those school districts, and they're already been voted off, you know, two years later, you know. And so, and what's happened is in those small towns, people have risen up and said, this is bullshit, we want to have we want to have we want to have good schools. We want don't want to spend all our time banning books and figuring out what we're going to do with transgender kids. And they've they've already lost the one that was the top vote getter the first time and brought that to a school district. He was came in last place. It's not so we you know we we can fight this in all sorts of different ways. But at the end of the day, it's going to be about people in those local school boards making the right decisions, and that will happen. I'm convinced of that. I, I, I went, when I was my first superintendent's job in a small town, and I, I had a school board that had uh, three Tea Party people on it, and very conservative financially but about halfway through the first year they said, oh "My god, we got to run a school district here. We got to do the right things for kids." And they turned out to be three of the best school board members I ever worked with. So it's just a, I hate to say it's just a matter of time, but it is it is important to give it some time, advocate for the right things, people will get figure it out.
1: I'm still Emily normally goes, but I have a question about education because the now more than ever do we need um, education to improve because we've seen the test scores drop. They were already in trouble, but then the pandemic has made them even worse. How concerned are you that there may be a lost generation from during the pandemic and what can be done to fill that gap, let alone fix the previous problems?
3: Yeah, well, the data sure suggests that those two years are really difficult on kids. There's no question about that. And what we have to do, frankly, is uh, provide resources for our schools. We can't be starving our schools at the same time or making sure that um, uh, kids uh, are learning what they need to learn today. uh, So I think it's more about resources. It always has been about resources. But it's also, in addition to money for schools, you know, when children, children come to school, they're only in school six, five hours a day, we have to worry about Health care. We have to worry about transportation. We have to worry about affordable housing. Uni, you know, all those things that surround these kids on a regular basis. Many children living in poverty or in, in difficult situations, and we just can't say, you know, it's a teacher's problem to figure all this out. It's not. It's the state's problem. We need to make sure that. Yes, we, pr- we provide money for schools, but we also have to provide the resources to address all those other issues.
2: So after your last election, you said it turns out that being boring wins. <laughs> so what did you mean by that, and how do you cultivate it?
3: <laughs> how do I what? What was that?
2: Uh, what did you mean, and how do you cultivate that?
3: How do I cultivate that? Well... It's, a, it's my DNA to be boring. <laughs> so uh, may, my, my children, maybe my grandchildren, have that DNA gene someplace in them. But at the end of the day, I am who I am. And I'm going to keep fighting for the right thing. I, I don't give a crap if I'm boring or not. I'm not going, I'm not, you know, when, when the Republicans Raise the, raise the annie and say say stupid things, certainly we'll address that, but I'm not going to, what they want me to do is take it to a different level, and then we go to a different level, and then we go to a different level, and nothing gets done. And so I'm going to continue to be who I am, and boring wins sometimes, <laughs> and uh, we're going to hope that it continues to win.
0: So, Governor Al, last question for you. None of us is from Wisconsin, although We've uh, already claimed our Wisconsin we're, we claimed lineage. Wisconsin. Yeah.
3: It's well, my, most, from most of superior Yeah, Lowatosa. Yeah. 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 See? Those are um, good places. None of me is
0: from Wisconsin. Yeah. All right. yeah. <laughs> and yes. Most of the people who are gonna listen to the Gabfest are not in Wisconsin. So so tell our listeners something that people get wrong about your state. Get wrong about our state.
3: I don't that's that, it's what? It's not it's not flat. That's, yeah, that's right. Yes, I will wax eloquently about the state topography and its beauty. <laughs> we are surrounded by water. Lake Michigan, one of the cleanest lakes now in, the, in Great Lakes, Lake Superior, which is the cleanest lake. Mississippi River. In western Wisconsin, the people that live there say they actually have a newspaper called the West Coast Gazette. This, this is the west coast of wisconsin i was i was in um, right outside of roqua wisconsin today a small town of roqua and with some help from the state and this is typical wisconsin the the local co-op and a nonprofit that serves people that are struggling financially, work together for our solar array for that part of the state. And obviously the state kicked in some money, I get that. But the most important thing is, they're gonna allow people with a lower income will be able to get rebate money from those solar so that they're gonna save like 50% on their, on their bills, their electric bills. That happens in Wisconsin, folks. That happens in Wisconsin.
0: So what I've learned is that Wisconsin has water and the sun.
1: (laughs) And rebates.
0: Governor Evers, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. I want to give a huge thank you to our Slate Plus listeners. Because of listeners like you, we've been able to keep doing the GabFest for so long. You get lots of great stuff for your subscription, bonus segments on every episode of the GabFest, special discounts on live shows like this one. Cocktail parties, you can come to the cocktail party and hang out with us like we just did. That was great. Uh, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site and much more. And this week, our Slate Plus bonus segment is going to be a Q&A with our audience here at the Majestic Theater. So if you are a member, thank you and enjoy it. If you are not a member, please go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Okay, we're going, to do, we're going to do a game I didn't tell you guys about this. Emily, you can participate. Yikes. I, d- I don't think, John, you can participate. An audience, you're going to participate.
2: Uh, wait, no, John. John.
0: I think John knows too much to participate in this game.
1: <laughs> Unless it's a game about my first name. It's probably one I don't know too much about. All right,
0: we'll see. Okay, so I'm going to say a name, okay? And you're going to tell me by cheering whether you think this person was a serious candidate for house speaker <laughs> in the past two days, Okay. <laughs> Okay. okay. So so the louder you cheer the more serious you are that you the more you believe this person was a serious candidate. Mark Green. I have no idea. Michael Kohler. <laughs> Charles Fleischman.
2: just like you were bored of not making
0: noise
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Kohler would get a shout out because there's a Kohler Wisconsin but
0: yeah okay there you so go. there's some shout outs from Mike Kohler alright Scott Austin yeah. Woo! Roger Williams
1: but he did great things for Rhode Island
0: Dexter Manley <laughs> Gary Palmer Not, Emily, never... who, which of those do you think was a candidate for House Speaker?
2: I have no idea. None. <laughs> Gary Palmer.
0: So, Mark Green apparently was a candidate. <laughs> Michael Kohler is one of my college roommates. <laughs> Charles Fleischman was a candidate. Never heard of that guy. Scott Austin was not a candidate, but Austin Scott was. Yeah. That was a trick. That's uh, tricky. Roger Williams from Texas was. Dexter Manley, of course, was a great uh, Washington football player. Gary Palmer, I guess, was a candidate. He got a bunch of votes for House. Anyway.
2: Anyway.
0: (laughs) The Donner party that is the House Republican caucus finally has crossed the mountain pass. They found a cabin to hole up in. They agreed late Wednesday night on a new candidate for House Speaker and... The House, oh, late Tuesday night, and the House voted on Wednesday, including votes from zombie Tom Emmer and the reanimated corpse of Jim Jordan, <laughs> voted to approve Mike Johnson as Speaker, bringing a temporary end to one of the sorriest spectacles in recent American political history. Um, it came after the public humiliation of the top three Republicans, McCarthy, Scalise, Emmer, uh, and of also of Jim Jordan. Johnson... John may be speaker. He will get a portrait up of him in the house one day. I think we have a picture. Do we have a picture up there of his new office? Oh, do we? But it's no. Oh, no.
2: oh, well, good. Thanks for telling. What is it? Now it's there. So,
0: it's a, but it's a gruesome job he's walking into.
1: It is a gruesome job. Just first to the picture. Um, today was the day after 22 days that they finally took down Kevin McCarthy's plaque, which read like that. So there was a lot. You probably saw that on social media.
2: So Wait, you have to explain how this happened to us. I've been waiting all day. I don't understand this. Well, I'm just explaining what they're
1: seeing on the thing. I'm in television. We're very dedicated to the pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, and so then now they've already got that up. So it's the sign above the door that goes into his suite of offices. Um, Well, how did this happen? Well, as David pointed out, this is not a model for decision-making, the way this was run. Um, but I think what comes to mind is what Lauren Michaels said about Saturday Night Live, which is, um, you know, we don't go on because we're ready. We go on because it's 1130. <laughs> they needed a speaker. And, you know, uh, anybody who's been in lo- involved in long negotiations and gets irritated and it just finally is just like, screw it, let's just do it. That's essentially part of it. That's a little bit. Fatigue. Um, uh, also, you know, Johnson is unknown enough uh, so that, and he and he stayed that way after he was voted for by the the Republican Conference. They asked him questions at the. My, we're going to return to this press conference, but it was so telling. Um, you had, on the one hand, he was asked about the fact that he spearheaded the effort to um, block the 2020 election results. And uh, Steve Scalise, the majority leader who was behind him, said, uh, um, let's move on. We're going to talk about policy, sort of whispered it to Johnson. And so, and they also booed the reporter who asked that. We're going to come back to this moment later. So he said, let's move on. Let's talk about policy. Then he was asked a question about funding Israel. And he said, we're not going to talk about policy here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the idea was... Keep it vague, right? Um, and they just wanted to be done with it. That's why they got every single Republican to vote for, which hasn't happened since Boehner was elected. Um, uh, and that's essentially it. He was, an, he was able to be all things to all people. And then we'll talk about David's question, because I don't want to monologue forever about all of the complexities and awful things that are ahead of him. Talk about yeah, that. Yeah, okay. let's talk about
2: going. that. Keep <laughs> going. We're listening. Well,
1: well, I mean, first of all, being leader is a really hard job because you have to listen to everybody and maintain your coalition. Could, that's can, actually,
0: John, can I pause? And, yeah. I, I, this, is a, this is like uh, uh, I'm just a bill up on Capitol Hill. What literally <laughs> is the job of the speaker? What, what is his authority?
1: The Constitution just says, hey, you can pick a speaker, and then it moves on. But the official government document that talks about the speaker, you can pick the chairs of the committee. You pick what goes to the floor. You pick who can speak. So you having you have total control over what the House of Representatives essentially does. Now there's the a
2: legislative chamber, and then that translates into power outside the chamber. Obviously,
1: yes. If you but but think about does it translate to power outside the behavior? I mean, how much power in the end did Kevin McCarthy have? Um, and in this party, what does it mean to have par- power? Now, um, I mean, so the problem in this job is being a coalition manager. You can't do it. It's like skiing a double black diamond. You can't just do it like that. And he is now a coalition manager with a teeny tiny little margin about to go into a fight about how to fund the government. And he now is not just speaking for his coalition. He's speaking for the Republican Party. And this is also, we can talk about his issue positions and the positions all Republicans have just refreshed for themselves by saying this is the kind of person we would like to lead us. So... I've always said that the January 6th is not a question about the past, it's a question about the future, and this is, they re-upped for his position on January 6th, so this is a fresh, live thing. Are they going to certify the election results in 2024? Um, So, he's got to manage his coalition, then he's got to go out and raise money, there's a big race, you know, there's a big campaign ahead, and the Democrats might retake the House. He's got to speak on all these complicated issues where it's not so great for the 14 Republicans who are in districts that where the, the constituents in that district voted for Joe Biden for president. They're in, you know, Republicans are not necessarily going to have great races in those states. So is it good for um, Johnson to be talking about a national abortion ban? Is it good for him to be talking about, well, anything um, for those candidates? <laughs> because he was elected as, I mean, he's being called the MAGA speaker, um, and I think the reason that he's called that is Matt Gates, who it's extraordinary that we're talking about Matt Gates, except for the fact that he shut down the House. He said, if you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, then you're not paying attention. He's totally right.
2: Is there any way that the government does not shut down David Plotz?
0: Uh, no, the government will shut down. John but let's ask John. The
1: reason the government was shut down is he has very thin thin margins. They don't have an agreement and the, the problem is they didn't they aren't wrestling with the fact that they don't control the Senate. I mean this is there's an unreality here that is compounded and I won't go on at length but legislatures create messy outcomes when you don't have all the power over everything. And the entire speaker fight was about not accepting that reality.
0: Let's talk for one second about Tom Emmer, who's, a again, a person you had never heard of, honestly. And, I had never heard of. And, uh, you know, briefly had, he had his three hours, three and a half hours, where he was going to be the Speaker of the House. And then he was, um, he was defenestrated for not having supported Trump fulsomely enough, for having voted to certify the election, the terrible thing of voting to codify marriage equality. Um, but one of the reasons he was taken out is that trump Trump sniped him. And it feels like Trump has the Heckler's veto for anything they want to do. He can't make things, but he can break things
1: right. right. And also, I mean, you got I think you have to see it in two ways. He has the Heckler's veto, so he can claim Tom Emmers as a victory for knocking Tom Emmers out. Um, and this is what's so extraordinary about that press conference after Johnson was picked as the consensus candidate for the Republicans. Donald Trump had just knocked Emmers out for what sin? Voting to certify the election. Believing in the democratic process. Why did Johnson win in part? Because he was the chief architect of the effort to block the democratic process, which they then wouldn't talk about when asked about it at the press conference. And what I think is notable about that press conference is the kind of sleight of hand. On the one hand, we're going to knock Emmer, who, by the way, is a leader, knows how to count votes, knows how to do all this stuff about coalition building that is the result. I mean, sorry, that is a precondition for actually making legislation to address needs, which you're supposed to do in a body that is there to legislate. He knows how to do all that stuff. Nope, can't do it because he believed in Joe Biden's victory. And then minutes later, they're saying, well, let's, let's put that under the rug that kind of sleight of hand is is dangerous um, because it tries to forget the second attack on the Capitol in the entire United States history, and you shouldn't ever be able to forget that.
2: So, so David's David's running thesis for years, months, weeks, has been that dysfunction in the government can take place, even if it seems pretty clearly, at the hands of the Republicans without actually hurting the Republicans. Are we going to see that this time? or is the extent of the you know chaos and the fact that now they've elected someone who has this record that you've been describing who seems to be sort of plucked out of the ether, a- and the likely chaos that's going to continue, or at least like, you know, no government open, no bills passed, et cetera, is that going to actually have political repercussions for Republicans? Well, twenty four.
1: this is the second answer to David's question, which I didn't give. So I'm, thank you, I'm glad you asked that. What if Donald Trump really wants chaos? What if there are lots of people who want chaos? Because you create chaos and then you sell order. So you like it when the House looks dysfunctional. And Republicans who created the dysfunction like it when the House looks rep- dysfunctional because they can say, look how dysfunctional it is. Let me do more things to stop the dysfunction. And when you have that sleight of hand I was talking about – you, you essentially let me do more things and don't you worry about what I'm going to do. Um, and that's really, really frightening. Um, and I think the most important thing is that the reason compromise... Is important. The reason knowing how these institutions are supposed to work and dealing with the messiness of those institutions is that's the only way you address all of those problems that rile up all of those voters who are so angry with the system. And the worst thing for the, any of us is that people look at the madness and say, oh, it's just madness, screw them. Because then you, you give no worth to the institution and you create the conditions for people who want to find solutions through their own methods, which are violent.
0: Given that, Emily what if you're if you're a democrat and you're seeking to maximize the the political advantage of democrats in 2024 what do you do now i mean do you allow the government to i mean where do you seek do you seek compromise at all do you not seek compromise do you allow it to sink into this dysfunction or 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 not
2: I mean, I think one thing that has worked for Democrats or worked in 2022 is portraying Republicans as extreme, right? And this is going to be pretty clearly extreme. I also seems like the only thing the House really needs to do in the next year is find a way to make the government open and provide funding for Ukraine and Israel. From the Democrats' point of view, I'm sure the Republicans have an actual agenda, but Then the question becomes: What would the Democrats be able to trade for those things? Is there actually anything that they would be willing to give that the Republicans want to take?
1: I don't know. I mean, I guess what what I'm what I'm stuck on is the fact that, like, we are talking about clearing the lowest possible bar. There are so many people who are so frustrated with what they think's happening in America. We're going to have David Leonard on next week to talk about his new book, which is about... And he has this amazing statistic in it, which says that, you know, around the World War II era, 92% of parents could expect their children to earn more than they did. And now that number's down to 50%. All of the routes to prosperity in America and to the American dream have been clotted up for one reason. Some of those roads don't even exist anymore. That is the reason we join together in governments and adjudicate our differences peacefully to address the problems before us so that we can create better lives for people who don't have the advantages that we have. And people would flock across the world to come here for that promise. That promise is silent when all you're doing is doing the bare minimum. And that's what we're talking about, is, is a, an institution and a set of incentives to do the bare minimum. And those who won in this fight by naming Johnson have a set of ideas that they hope to basically clamp on top of the legislative process it doesn't work that way
0: okay john just to close us out generally i think everyone agrees that people who serve in the us military should be paid they agree that they want social security checks to go out which i guess will keep going out they you know they would like if they come to washington they would like a museum to be open i don't think people they want the air traffic controllers to be not angry and also to be getting paid. So how do we get from this spot to some kind of compromise that gets us to the next election, at least?
1: Well, I think it'll probably be the pain we'll get to. Remember, there was one of the shutdowns. The pain ended up being the the national airport was closed and and all the airports were closed or not closed. Closed, but they were on these really reduced schedules because of the air traffic controllers. And all the constituents are like, I want to go home to visit grandma, and you guys better reopen this. And everybody found religion. I think that's what's going to end up happening. And I think also he has a teeny tiny margin. They're going to be a bunch of moderates that are going to go to the new speaker and say, Hey, you're killing us. This may not be hurting people in districts where they win by 45% because it's full of Republican voters, but we're not, my district is not built that way. And, but the pain is probably going to have to get to that level based on what Johnson has said, what the people who he's responsible for his victory have claimed for him to believe, and the fact that they don't control the Senate. I mean, it's, like, the math seems um, seems inevitable. Um,
2: maybe the executive branch, this is a mean thing to say to anyone who has to travel, so forgive me, maybe the executive branch should mess with the airplane, airports first like do the things first that are really going to make people inconvenienced to the point of that kind of pain
1: wait what wait
2: so what? that that way you create energy quickly oh. to have the shutdown end as opposed because I feel like it took a while last yeah. time for them to get to that yeah. right they can they're sort of they pull the plug on different parts of the government at different yeah I, mean, I don't
0: I think mean, there's, I don't I mean think there's Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving like travel that. the government's gonna shut down November 17th there's Thanksgiving travel I, like can you imagine and then there's Christmas travel
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's going to be awful
0: for people. I want to leave us with one thought, which
1: might be a segue to our next topic. But as a part of her legal statement, Jen Ellis, uh, Jen Ellis, who's the lawyer for President Trump, as a part of her legal statement, she said that if she knew then what she knows now about how the election was not stolen, she would not have done what she did. If Johnson were asked that same question, knowing what he knows now, would he have spearheaded the effort to block the vote? If he had had given an answer that was anything different than, yes, I would have done the exact same thing, if he'd given any other different answer, he would not be speaker. And that is extraordinary. The idea that you can basically make up the rules in order to make sure your guy is still president is alive and well.
2: And the person who has the power to certify the election results the next election has that view and is being rewarded for it.
0: If you think the House Speaker's race was hard to track, try paying attention to Donald Trump's legal troubles. The president <laughs> is facing 91 criminal charges in four separate cases in four jurisdictions, at least two civil trials, and he has a ton more to worry about this week. The past few days have seen a series of tumbling dominoes, namely Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, Ken Chesbro, and Mark Meadows. The first three, Trump lawyers... Intimately involved in various election stealing ste- election stealing schemes, have taken plea deals and agreed to testify against other defendants. At least in Georgia, Meadows, the White House chief of staff in the final days, appears to have sought some kind of immunity in exchange for dishing on Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Also, in other Trump news, he was fined ten thousand dollars on Wednesday for violating a gag order in one of his cases, although not the gag order that was put on him last week a totally different gag order so
1: and i didn't know he had two gag orders i was wondering if the new york judge was somehow like once there's a gag order any judge can fire up a gag order i did are there really are there 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 two two gag orders orders orders. it's so hard to keep up with all the guys there's a lot of
0: so emily what happened with these lawyers why are they all singing now why did they all give it up now and and what does it signify that they have agreed to testify
2: Well, I mean, look, the threat of going to prison can sometimes (laughs) make people have a, you know, big moment of awakening. They also have mounting legal bills, and they also feared threats to their law licenses going forward, and the kinds of crimes they pled to... um, were either misdemeanors or had included in the plea agreement that it was not a crime of moral turpitude which is the standard that the bar a state bar sometimes uses for disbarring or disciplining people. So yeah, they had a lot of good reasons. I mean, this is a huge development in this case and it really I think validates the approach of this giant Rico case that district attorney Fani Willis brought in Georgia because This is when you're the prosecutor, this is what you want. You want the smaller fish to get scared and then start singing about what the bigger fish were up to. The way you get a plea deal like this is to promise to cooperate and to testify. And so that's what she has now is cooperating witnesses. Um, And that should be very nerve wracking for the people um, higher up the food chain, starting with Donald Trump.
0: Can you get into the legal nitty gritty there about why? these lawyers testifying about Trump might be harmful to him.
2: Yeah, I mean, Sidney Powell was right in the middle of all the craziest stuff. I mean, she is the person who sort of stands for crazy MAGA lawyering. Yeah, including the idea
1: that Hugo Chavez was involved in, but, and just so everybody thinks that's crazy, the new Speaker of the House also promoted that same theory.
2: Super. Um, Yeah, I mean... She was at meetings at the White House where they were talking about naming her as a special prosecutor so she could go investigate the conspiracies about trying to, you know, commandeer voting equipment around the country that the federal government was going to do. That was either her idea or she was the one bandying it about. Um, So she knows things and she was a part of these situations. The question is going to be what kind of documentation does she have about that?
0: But I That's I guess just
2: one example,
0: but it isn't I guess the, the, the thing that I keep reading about is that a lot of these charges against Trump are predicated on the idea that there's criminal intent, that he is the orchestrator of it. And it's that, that he's whereas he's going to say, oh, I was just taking my lawyer's advice or he might say that. Right. And doesn't so, this put that defense in danger?
2: He, yes, I think it absolutely does, because once you have your lawyer saying, actually, this wasn't true. Um, And I knew that at the time that pollutes their legal advice. And I think, you know, just the idea that when the other part of this case is going to be all the other information Trump was getting, which was good information. And so this idea that he relied on them exclusively and that that's going to be his defense. And I think they will probably, well, we'll see. It'll, the the biggest question will be what did they have to show that that's not true that his claims about them about the roles they were playing um, you know was he really directing them whether the, uh, the rather than the other way around and I think it's worth also remembering Rudy Giuliani's role in all this because he's a key part of the picture with Ellis with Powell at least um, for sure
1: he was a member of the lead strike force team um,
2: exactly we don't want to forget that
1: the uh yeah, they never got to wear those night vision goggles, though. Um, she, Ellis, said I was basically led astray, but not. Be, I was led astray by lawyers who should know better, which was basically a direct shot at him. So presumably, he would be among the most nervous.
2: Yes, he seems to be really exposed here, and then. Chesbro is the person who, you know, pled guilty involving the fake elector scheme. And that is obviously a different part of the RICO allegations, but one that's also important. And again, it's going to be this question, how high up does this go? Who else can he implicate? And then if you can implicate Giuliani or Eastman, these people who seem to be closer to Trump, then those people start to have an incentive to plead guilty and then to cooperate. And so that's what you want is kind of dominoes.
1: And Chesbro... Testified to the idea or not testified. he has emails that he wrote, um, which he's now said, yes, I, I did that, which was the idea that this fake elector scheme and basically all the legal maneuvering was not to adjudicate a point
0: they thought was valid, but basically to slow things down.
2: Right. Right, and that's illegal.
0: What, what do you guys make? What do you guys make of the leak uh, came out of ABC News that Mark Meadows, who was the White House Chief of staff during the last days of the Trump presidency, uh, has sought immunity and has been talking to Jack Smith the the federal prosecutor who's who's doing the federal cases against Trump
2: I mean, I think we're not quite sure what he actually has said, how much of that's true. His lawyer is disputing that. But it sounds like what he has is what's called use immunity, which is pretty limited from his point of view. It means that the prosecutors, if they want to indict him, cannot use his own words against him. But that's different from cannot indict him at all. And it's also different from being a cooperating witness. It means that in this limited way you're talking, but it probably means he's not... Really spilling everything he has to the government. He's not under that kind of pressure. Um, He is, though, another of the indicted RICO uh, defendants. And so in that case, he really has exposure, even though Jack Smith, the federal prosecutor, has not indicted him yet.
1: And the key claim in the ABC reporting is that Meadows told Trump repeatedly that you lost the election. Um, And
2: that Trump was being dishonest when he said otherwise. Yes, which goes
1: back to your point, David, about uh, Trump's state of mind and what he knew when he was behaving in all of this. Filthy mens rea. Um,
2: And obviously Meadows was very close to Trump, spending a lot of time with Trump. Again, what kinds of notes, emails, documentation does he have?
0: John, David French, the New York Times columnist, wrote today that he said that the guilty pleas have a potential legal effect, but they could also have a cultural and political effect as well. When the MAGA lawyers admit to their misdeeds, it should send a message to the Republican rank and file: that the entire effort to steal election was built on a mountain of lies. Does that actually seem like it is happening? Does it seem like this anything that has happened in these, you know, this this rabbit warren of cases against Trump has? Moved Republican voters in any meaningful way, or independent voters?
1: No. Well, independent voters are where they are, p- pretty much where they are. I don't think. No, I, I don't think the movement. There is no movement. I think this is again why this sleight of hand in the uh, press conference after Johnson was named is um, so important because um, um, it's creating a set of tools to wave away all of this. And what's happened now is that these. As, um, and, and it's created a set of tools to wave away unpleasant things at the direction of the likely Republican nominee. So, to the extent that what happens usually is a, a nominee says something, but then his whole party, people are like, "Wait, that's a crazy thing to say. I have no ability in politics to keep up with a with a statement that's like that." But they tr- they have become trained with during the Trump presidency to kind of sign on to whatever he says the story is. So the the story from the former president now is basically Meadows and all these other people are flipping are only flipping because they're worried about the legal bills and they're, you know, going to jail and all that. So that they're not really truthfully saying he did anything wrong. They're just saying what they have to say to get a plea deal and be done. And, 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 so that will, that will work through the bloodstream there won't be anybody like Mitt Romney might stand up and say that doesn't make any sense. He'll be the only one, and so the voters, so far, based on everything that's happening in the Republican primary, don't seem to be uh, moving in the least, if not except to Trump's side.
2: And this will also be, if there is ever a trial, the defense of trial. Why believe these people? They all they all pled guilty, and they have every incentive to implicate other people, right? right? That's always. How. I mean, isn't
0: right? How do how is the prosecution to deal with the fact that it's like liars who have a history of lying, working for a liar,
2: lying, liars lying lie.
0: about everything? I mean, it does seem problematic that it's it's liars all the way down.
2: I mean, that's why it matters so much that it not just be their word, that they actually have backup for the things they're saying. And Michael Cohen is, a you know, an obvious example here where you have someone who pled guilty who went to prison. But, you know, is he completely disbelieved by jurors, by the public? Not necessarily. Uh, and again, what kind of... How can you back up these points you're making?
1: Can I make basically the point I make all the time? But it's worth... Uh,
0: we're talking as... Why sh- stop now? Yes, exactly. Why make this the night you don't do it?
1: Right. Well, we're talking about the legal context, which is, of course, quite important, and it's important what the present state of mind is for the legal context. But we should also not forget that he's asking to be rewarded with a second term for this behavior, and that standard is quite different. That standard should be that before you go ripping the country apart by claiming an election was stolen a president has some obligation to be steward of the madness he's about to unleash into the world, which is claiming that the democratic process has stolen an election. That's the obligation of the job. He should have performed it when he was in it, and yet there's not a single piece of evidence of the president saying, you know, I might think this election is stolen, but gee, before we go out and say that, we should probably care about what that's going to do to the country. there There is no microscope strong enough to find a piece of evidence of him doing that and that's a failure of his time in office but it is really not the kind of behavior for which he should be rewarded with a second term and that's and and this is not like his position on you know treaty of the sea this is on the central thing which is whether power can be peacefully transferred in this country because that's the precondition for answering all of those incredibly difficult questions that aren't going answered by a dysfunctional system. It's like the core of the core. So that's and all still happening. And wouldn't he helping. be
2: more popular in some way if he could actually figure out a way to pivot, right? I mean, that could make him more appealing to independence. It could soften him in some way. And yet, zero chance, zero chance this is going to happen because this is all about self-indication.
0: Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. Last time, last time I was in uh, Wisconsin, I was in Milwaukee, and I was served a Bloody Mary which had celery, a pickle... Bacon, cheese, a soft pretzel, a caramel donut in it. It was, it was quite a cocktail. It was a broth in it. It was a brat. I sucked it through a hot dog. Um, yes. Chased by a
1: cup of hot fat.
0: <laughs> that would have been a relief at that point. John, what is your what is your chatter?
1: Um... I beg your indulgence. I feel like I've talked a lot and I'm afraid that's going to continue. Keep Um, going. You're doing great. Okay. So my chatter is about when um, we had some construction going on next to the apartment next to us and it kind of has been going on for a really long time and it doesn't seem-
2: Maybe you shouldn't keep talking. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Are you acting as my counsel? Anyway, this construction that was going on next to us, it was going on, it seemed kind of dodgy, and so I started to think about, and there was no permit, or, you know, in New York, there places where there's any little bit of construction, there's just plastered with permits, no permits there, and so I started to think about where the permitting system came from, and how you, and where, and why it came from, because I'm really dull. Anyway... <laughs> Turns out the story is kind of interesting. So there was a time in America where, okay, you need a permit now to do anything. You have to have engineers to do it. But there was a time in America where you could build a huge, hulking, dangerous structure in the middle of downtown, like creaking over, you know, couples as they're pushing their baby in the pram and people as they're outside taking their ham sandwiches out of the wax paper. And that creaking, big, huge sculpture, you could just make it. And that was fine. And everybody had to go around hoping that it didn't, like, collapse on them. Well, on January 15th, 1919, it was a very busy time on the front pages of America. You had the meetings in Paris to determine the end of the First World War. America had just come out of the Spanish flu epidemic. And nevertheless, on the 15th of January... As a number of municipal workers were sitting down to have lunch of ham sandwiches, in the shadow of the molasses tank at the Purity Distilling Company in Boston's North End, they heard a rumbling, and then they heard what sounded like gunfire. And that was the rivets of a 50-foot-high, 90-foot-in-diameter container of molasses that unzipped and outrushed 2.3 million gallons of molasses, All at once. Um, Historian Stephen Polson has written a book called Dark Tide, The Great Molasses Flood of of 1919, and it recounts this extraordinary story. And here's what the Boston Post, here's how the Boston Post reported it in the language of the time. A rumble, a hiss, some say a boom and a swish, and the wave of molasses swept out. It smote the huge steel girders of the L structure and bent, twisted, and snapped them as if by the smash of a giant's fist. Across the street, down the street, it rolled like a two-sided breaker at the seashore. Thirty feet high, it smashed tenements. Swirling black, it sucked a modest frame dwelling from where it nestled beside the three-story brick tenements and threw it a mass of wreckage under the L structure. Then... Balked by the staunch brick walls of the homes at the foot of the hill, the death-dealing mass swept back towards the water. Like eggshells, it crushed the buildings of the north end yard of the city's paving division. To the north it swirled and wiped out practically all of Boston's only electric freight terminal. Big steel trolley freight cars were crushed as if eggshells and their piled up cargo cargo boxes and merchandise minced like so much sandwich meat. Adding to this awful wreckage was the fact that the sailors who disgorged from a ship that was docked in the north end were slowed by the fact that they were now knee-deep in molasses, unable to rescue. 20 people died, 150 people were injured. No one's exactly sure what happened. But the theory is that it had been freezing in Boston's uh, north end, two degrees on January 15th, Suddenly, though, the temperature climbed to 40 degrees. They then poured a whole new casing of, of new, a whole new amount of new warm molasses, and basically this created gas, and this tank couldn't handle it. So there was a massive, massive class action suit. This was new, It and the class action suit is, is itself part of what makes this story extraordinary, but the class action suit itself was a maddening, uh, behemoth of a thing, 119 claims. At the first meeting, there were 125 lawyers pressing their big boxy suits against each other in the courtroom. So they whittled it down to just two sets of, of lawyers and then the company. And the company that owned the tank said, this wasn't our fault, it was done by anarchists. Which... Which is, this is not like January 6th and Antifa did it. This was real because the Boston area had experienced 40 explosive incidents the year leading up to the molasses flood. And the factory that, the reason this molasses was all in this enormous tank is they were converting the molasses into alcohol for munitions to fight in World War I. And the reason anarchists were blowing things up is they were against the U.S. activities in Europe. But in the aftermath of this five-year-long trial, they found that the man who had supervised the distillery tank's construction not only lacked technical training, but couldn't read blueprints. No legitimate engineers or architects had been commissioned to assess the structure, and because the structure was in an area where there were lots of immigrants and people who didn't, you know, have much political power, there wasn't too much terrible concern about it. Um, they also found at trial that the the that the, the the container leaked so much molasses that kids from the neighborhood would take pails and hold it under the the, the, the um, barrels or this enormous fifty-foot structure to capture the molasses that leaked. And instead of fixing it, the company just painted the thing brown so that you couldn't see the molasses. In this, in the end, the United States Industrial Alcohol Company was uh, compelled to pay fifteen million dollars in today's money, which isn't very much, but it was. It, it set the precedent that you could be held liable, businesses could be held liable for culp- and culpable for unsafe uh, structures. So at, right after that, Boston required that engineers sign off on any building and then an actual engineer put his or her signature to the construction of the thing so that you wouldn't have structures like this anymore. And that then swept the country, bringing accountability into, into construction into the American history.
0: Emily, what is your chatter?
2: Mine is so much more contemporary and earnest. Um, Okay, so we have made it through the whole show without talking about Israel, Gaza, Palestine, but... Um, for people who are thinking about this, whether they like it or not, I have a few podcasts to recommend. Um, The first is called Hesket Oslo, um, which just means Oslo podcast in Hebrew. It's um, by Arnon Degani, who is a scholar at Penn. It's currently in Hebrew, but it's coming out in English soon. And it's a long look back at Oslo, the peace negotiations of the 90s, what led up to them, um, what went wrong in them. Uh, I've read in English the scripts of the first three episodes and I thought it was excellent so keep an eye out for that Um, and then I've also been listening to a podcast called This is Palestine put out by the Institute of Middle East Understanding um, that's been pulling in voices from Gaza uh, and also has a look back at Oslo because that's 30 years ago Um, and then my last one is Ezra Klein this week interviewed Peter Beinart and Spencer Ackerman and um, I found it quite moving so if you've missed that Check it out. Short, short.
0: So my my chatter is um, it's it's very self-involved, which is that I because uh, th- I, I realized I was talking to someone at a cocktail party and, and what did I actually talk about? And it's this. And I'm trying something which I've never done before, and I've been craving I've been craving learning how to do it, which is I'm trying to learn how to sing.
2: That's so which great! Is that I love you, that you're doing So you, this. so.
0: You two, in particular, we've in over our time together. We've had some sing-alongs together, and I, you two are both musical. And I've always, I have this. I'm going to sound like an egomaniac here for a second. I have this really resonant, really nice speaking voice, but and people always tell me that it's true. I know it's true. Um, uh, but I have never really been able to sing, and I've been embarrassed by it and scared of it. And uh, so I decided. I really wanted to sing, and so I've been taking lessons, and it's so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, (laughs)
1: tell us what they're like. What is the nature of the... How does it go? What do you come in, and is it Mary Had a Little Lamb, or how's it going? Well, I
0: have this great uh, teacher, uh, Karen Harris, who's teaching me, and she has me, like, learning how to blow through a straw, sort of, like, blow notes through a straw, because that's supposed to help me do something, just trying to (laughs) learn scales try doing breathing exercises oh, the breathing um, exercises. and one of the problems is I have no innate musicality and also no sense of rhythm and <laughs> those two things are both difficult I can kind of stay on pitch I can I actually can, can sort you, of you sing. can
2: hear that so that's yeah. good yeah
0: but I can't like if you I couldn't I can't tell what notes are in relation to each other and I don't understand the language of it. And so like, I remember listening to you talk, I don't know what like a key is. That doesn't mean anything to me. And I, and I, no matter how much I pound at my, I Did can't you take
2: any music lessons when you were little, very no. little, okay. very little, well, you but, you it's, that but I don't think
0: you actually, I'm not sure I'm going to actually need to know that. Yeah, I think it's more just learning to, you know, use the voice to try to match the sound.
1: How do you, how is the breathing? How do you find the breathing business? It seems okay. Because uh, at various times in my career, since I picked print for a reason, um, I have had lessons about how to talk on television, which to me is like I cannot think of anything more painful. And it it requires, there's a lot of this breathing going on. If I had your voice, I could really make something of this thing.
0: You could. You'd have a career. You might have a career, TV. And so,
1: but... but, um, Having said that the breathing there there is there is something to it
0: but do you it... I I'm sure I'm definitely getting better I can tell I'm getting better I can tell the breathing is helping I can I I absolutely understand when I'm I sing to myself I know I sound better um Are you a bass? Uh weirdly I like sometimes but I'm not I can't I'm erratic sometimes I'm a bass and sometimes I'm not a bass Um <laughs> And so, <laughs> oh
4: <my God. laughs>
2: you did kind of set yourself up, but yeah. you could also postpone it. <laughs> we could sing with you if something you know.
0: I kind of wondered if that was going to happen.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, what do you okay. mean? You
0: kind of wondered. I, uh, This is all some bait exercise. Mm -hmm.
1: And well done, everybody, for Uh, taking it.
0: Okay, all right, okay. I'll sing. So I've been, so, so I was, I've been, some, (laughs) I don't think I've ever been as scared of anything as I am right at this moment.
1: Oh my God, this is so brave of you.
2: I mean. (laughs) Okay,
0: okay, okay, okay. So I've been, So there's a Tom Waits song, uh, Jersey Girl, that Bruce, Bruce Springsteen does this cover of a Tom Waits song, Jersey Girl, and that's the song I've been singing to myself. So I'm going to try it. Okay. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm going to close my eyes, too. I got no time for the corner boys out on the street making all that noise. Or the girls down on the avenue. Cause tonight I want to be with you. Tonight I want to take that ride. Cross the river to the Jersey side. Take you to the carnival. And go on all the rides. Cause down the shore everything's all right. You and your baby on a Saturday night. You know all my dreams come true when I'm walking down the street with you. Sing, sha la 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 la, sha la 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 la, sha la 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 la, sha la 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 la. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm taping it all too, so maybe it'll be a podcast one day. Uh, All right. (laughs) Thank you. That was wow.
1: I um just in uh, just to get it back to me. um, On Instagram, I saw um, in, in an Irish pub they were. It was like 100 people smashed into this Irish pub singing a Mumford & Sons song, and I posted it on Instagram, and like six responses were, David Plotts would love this. It was massive group singing, which is the other thing you love.
0: I, I do love yeah. it. Okay. Um, all right, so... And, uh, all right, thank you all. That was so nice of you. We have two special guest chatters. Uh, our first guest chatter is a listener chatter. Listeners, you have emailed us chatters at gabfestitslate.com. Thank you. And we got one a few weeks ago from someone which was about Wisconsin. We thought, why don't we invite Jake Cinderbrand to come and chatter live and in person. So Jake, come on out.
4: Hello. Thank you um, I'm Jake. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota, but a native native Madisonian, and my chatter is about one of Madison's many gifts to the world, the Wisconsin Idea. A progressive era philosophy uh, that universities have a mission of conducting research for the public good, and the public has a duty to fund higher education. And over the years, the Wisconsin Idea has led to Um, funding higher education to countless scientific breakthroughs and many of the progressive reforms of the last century. And while you're in town, you can taste one of the sweetest legacies of the Wisconsin idea, Babcock. (laughs) The world's greatest ice cream, available only in Madison, made by the UW's uh, food sciences department. While you're here, stop by the union for a scoop. Every flavor is delightful, but... Try the orange custard chocolate chip. <laughs> Sweet. Thank you, Jay. Thank Jim. you.
1: Thank you. That's
0: great. We have, a, we have a second guest chatter, which is when we were coming to Madison, we, there was a, somebody here who we were so excited to hear about because he's a, a podcast hero. Um, Mike Duncan is a historian. He's the author of two New York Times bestsellers, uh, one about Rome, one about the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, and he's the creator of two acclaimed podcasts, Revolutions, and then the podcast that probably all of you know, The History of Rome. When that meme went around a couple of weeks ago about how often is your husband, boyfriend, father thinking about Rome, the answer is if you're Mike Duncan, all the time, apparently. Um, but he is he is to blame for all of that Rome contemplation. So please join us in welcoming Mike Duncan for a chatter.
5: Hello. Do I have any people? Hi, my people. So should I talk? What's your chatter? I'm here here to chatter. Okay, so the the bare minimum is that I'm here to make sure that everybody thought about Roman history today. Which you're doing right now, because I'm talking to you about Roman history, and so you're all thinking about it in your heads. Um, but mostly what I want to chatter about is that something we were talking about before the show, which is that I have written a couple of books, and I've done a couple of podcasts, and they have largely been about the collapse of civilizations and societies. And my first book was about the fall of the Roman Republic and how you know problems uh, 50 or 60 years before Caesar comes along is actually like some of the things that are eating out the foundations of the Republic and causes it to fall. Uh, I did a long podcast series where each season is about me describing a society that is starting out pretty healthy and is just in stages falling apart until it collapses into revolution. And I wouldn't be talking about it unless it did collapse into revolution. And so the last, I don't know, say five, eight years or so, has been trying for all of us in terms of looking around and seeing, you know, the, like signs of collapse. And Mike, do you see any, you know, sort of revolutionary hints out there? Like, do you think that maybe we're 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 in a bad moment here? And I'm like, of course we are. I see them everywhere. Um, but where that can take us is to someplace which becomes a little bit nihilistic and maybe a little black-pilled, where we look at all of these problems and we start to think that maybe they're insurmountable, uh, maybe there's too much happening, maybe there's actually nothing that we can do about any of this. And so I'm I've currently working on a book right now, I'm doing a book about the uh, crisis of the third century, which is a period in Roman history where we are, we've left the high empire behind and... Rome was probably flourishing as the result of uh, a climate system that had prevailed over the Mediterranean for like 400 years that started to shift in the late second century and early third century. There was a climate shift. This started making migratory patterns throughout Eurasia. It started kicking people into motion. Um... Growing patterns and grazing patterns started to change. People weren't able to make a living anymore. Uh, There was a plague that comes through. The Cyprian plague comes through and starts eating up. Uh, The underbelly, yeah, did somebody just shout out the Cyprian plague? It was horrible, man. They think it was like Ebola. Um, So the Romans really were facing something that very nearly collapsed their entire civilization, and I think that they were facing natural factors, human factors, um, economic factors that were beginning to take them down. And so why, though, do they not collapse and instead manage to pivot and turn it around and begin to put their civilization back together, which is something that happens? And so my point here is just that when we look to the past, we can often look to it and see warning signs. We can see how bad history can get. We can start to get worried about all of these things and think to ourselves, well, history is teaching us that basically everything is going to collapse and be bad. And I'm here to tell you that we can also look to history and find opportunities for hope and to see that what happened was not some magical thing, it was groups of people getting together and doing things that needed to be done that either in sort of one dramatic gesture or in, or in long-term sort of piecing of things back together, um, that we can come through these things and that humans actually do these things all the time. And history is full of generous people and history is full of patient people and history is full of joyful people and history is not just full of all of this, all of these things that will, have us go forth in our lives and feel that we're surrounded by doom and gloom. Who was the Matt Gates of Rome? Oh, some, just some guy who got stabbed and later dumped in a sewer. That's about his level of, you know, stature. So that was certainly longer than one minute, but I certainly wanted to leave everybody with it. There's hope, there's hope. History teaches us that there is hope, and history teaches us that the only thing that we can count on is ourselves. So
0: I'm gonna give you an extra 30 seconds. What's a one or two things that were done in the third century or second century to help them recover, a specific thing?
5: Boy, let me tell you. Um, There's actually one, uh, because I, I was just working on this bit today, is there was, uh, there was depopulation that was happening inside the empire because of prolonged wars, uh, because of the plagues, because of other conditions. And then there were these people who were uh, pressing upon the borders of Rome along the Rhine River and along the Danube River uh, because of this climate shift that was happening in the second and third century. And so they were like, we, we wanna move into the empire. And the Romans were fighting them, and there were, there were lots of wars along the borders, and then after like 30 or 40 years of this, with the borderlands completely depopulated and a population of people who still wanted to move there, the Emperor Probus starts on a systematic level saying, well, why don't you guys just come live in our empty lands and allow your people and your work, and your labor to now not be something that we resist, but something that we invite in to this place, which I believe probably put the Romans on the road to at least 200 more years of uh, of sustained uh, you know, hegemony over the Mediterranean world. That, right, I mean, gee whiz, we're living in a country with a declining birth rate and an aging population, and boy, how are we ever going to pay for all of this stuff? And oh, there's all these immigrants, so we can't let them in here, like, hmm kind of think maybe we can. And I kind of think that the Romans of all people are the ones who teach us this. And people want to hijack Roman history and be like, well, this is about a bunch of white guys who are going around as and it's great. Uh, No, this is not what the Romans were. And if we can learn a lesson about uh, maintaining a polyglot empire uh, from the Romans, then we should learn that lesson. Mike Duncan. Thank you. I'll get out of here.
0: That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Katie Rayford pulled all of this together for us here in Madison. Thank you to our hosts at the Majestic Theater and to all my colleagues at CityCast Madison. Thank you to the wonderful sold out crowd here at the Majestic. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Alicia Montgomery is VP of audio for Slate. Ben Richmond is senior director for podcast operations. Please email us your chatter at gapbust at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So, our uh, Slate Plus segment today is the Q&A. Some of you submitted questions, and we will hit a few of them. Emily, take us away.
2: Bike, bus, car, or walk? Why? I really like how these are all one-syllable words in this question. I mean, bike, if at all possible. I've been skeptical of e-bikes because I just felt like it was an excuse to not move your arms and legs around, but what I've... uh, But what I understand and appreciate now about e-bikes is that they could take you into colder weather because you don't have to then get all sweaty, right? And then you could possibly be outside longer biking. But you're just skeptical of No, I'm just trying to
1: figure out why the e-bikes you said move your arms and legs around. How? Where do the arms come in? I guess
2: you're right. Good point. Yeah, there isn't a whole lot of arm
1: movement. I'm just thinking you're a really enthusiastic bike bicyclist. I I, I, I walk uh, uh, because I can't bike because of my back. And uh, you've
2: never really been a biker, though, I don't feel like. Like in your urban life.
1: Well, I was, when I was, oh my gosh, though, when I was a kid, when you're a bike, as a a kid, when you're a bike, I was so much, I was such an enthusiast, I thought I was a bike for a while. Um, (laughs) When you're a kid, a bike is your first taste of freedom, and you can like, bike in a town, you can, you know, go down just as fast, that's a little bit faster than you can tolerate on that hill, and like, and those ramps, how many people had plywood that was available, and, and you learned about a fulcrum, right, because you'd like set up the, you'd set up the jump, and then it would go, donk, and then you'd go, Um and after about 112 tries, you finally figured that out. Oh, I, I loved bikes as a kid, uh, but you're right. As an adult, um,
4: I, you, you know, like only the pace the of walking
1: better. Yeah. Also, walking is much more. I'm um, trying to be better at noticing things, and I feel like walking is more available
0: to that. I'm bike or walk, but they're all great, and you need them all. And people who pretend you don't need a car, you probably need a car.
1: David, if you was if you were a genie, and there was one thing you could change about. Government, What would it be?
0: About the U.S. government or about all governments?
2: I think do the U.S. government. I think if you're uh,
0: a genie, you can choose. I think I'd have a parliamentary system, I guess.
1: Wave a wand and make a parliamentary system. I think
0: system. so. <laughs> per, but, but it would have to not be a gerrymandered. It would have to be somehow... Have proportional have representation. Proportional representation. I was thinking about yeah. that. What would you do, Emily?
2: Well, I want to do three things, not one. I mean proportion I might you get three
0: wishes with genies. Yeah, That's right. that is the tradition. I'm
2: trying to think if I would rank them. I might put proportional representation at the top, but changing um, the composition of the Senate. Oh man. I mean so that we're not <laughs> having such huge population disparities. I mean, which actually is another form of non-proportional representation. And then no life tenure um, for judges anymore. <laughs> I think
1: we should make them make them vote. Like they
2: mandatory don't, voting, or like,
1: make, like no, yeah. no, no, not for not I to elect people, know. but make the lawmakers vote. They they don't vote on. I mean, this is one of the things that uh, the new speaker says he's going to try and make them do. We'll see if he's how successful he is. But you have to vote on stuff, like all kinds of stuff. You have to go on the record, vote for things, and 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 take a stand.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today.